Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 23 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike, and that over there is Gavin. Gavin, nobody likes you when you're 23, but I still think you're as beautiful as ever. See, I don't know whether to be insulted by that or take it as a compliment. I'll, I'll do both. I was, so, uh, both was the, uh, the appropriate reaction. Thanks, both is what I was going for. Okay, well... <laughs> Well, it's a good thing well, I'm 25 I, then. I'm not, I'm not 23. <laughs> so we'll see what Mike has to insult me with for uh, for 25. But I've got to keep coming up with like new songs that have different uh, <laughs> different ages in each one. <laughs> oh, for each episode, that'll be my uh, my new project. But what's new, Gavin? I uh, heard you're uh, moving in my neck of the woods soon. I am now that I have finished my uh, my master's degree. You're I will be master. Moving... Oh, why? Why? Thank you. Um, I have, uh, I'll be moving back to New York, uh, in lieu of finding a job. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I mean, I'm still applying for a bunch of jobs, uh, applying for a couple positions at like national parks and things, just like sort of temporary internships and stuff until I can get, you know, a, a bigger foot in the door. Um, but yeah. So in the meantime, I'm moving back to New York, which is refreshing as much as I like South Dakota. I'm ready to be home for a little bit, I think. I'm ready to be like not that far away from you. You know, we were we were just talking before we started recording. There's a uh, there's a real possibility of some live in person recordings with the two yeah. of us before too long. Yeah, definitely. I I'm excited for that. I I I can't wait for that. Like like with you specifically, but also just in general. Like this, oh god, I know. I am hoping. I've already already started seeing a uh, a couple of friends now that were uh, that were vaccinated, and I'm mm-hmm. I am ready to. Uh, to not care for a little while. Same. And it's, it's been fairly nice actually. So uh, as I've mentioned, my girlfriend is in town. She was in town when we recorded uh, yesterday as well. And then my parents are in town. They're helping me move back to New York just because I have way too much stuff to ever, uh, you know, take back by myself. And, you know, all four of us are, are fully vaccinated and, and the two weeks out from, from the second shot. So we, we've been going out a little bit and just sort of acting more normal, still not totally normal yet but the most normal i've personally felt in the last year and a half it it really is just that sigh of relief of okay like i like i can now go do stuff and like i still shouldn't be an idiot but i can right right i can i can go and just like all right i'm gonna go have a burger or something right like i'm not gonna go around licking stuff and coughing on people but (laughs) yes there are some habits we should keep with us but overall i am uh i am looking forward to the summer which is uh just about upon us yeah, just about. You know, my parents have told me, at least in northern New York, that the weather's been really crappy uh, up until like the day they left. It was super nice. So ho- <laughs> hopefully winter, win- winter, summer uh, comes uh, comes on strong, at least in New York. Uh, yeah, we can we can save winter from coming on strong. Yeah, at least for at least for a little while. Yeah. So before we get started with today's episode, do we have our uh, our calendar pick of the week? We sure do, but before we get into that, make sure to uh, check us out on Twitter uh, as well. The link will be down below in the show notes. Uh, I really want to grow on Twitter. I think it's fun. I really enjoy Twitter. Uh, although I'm not, in general, very good at social media, personally. It's something <laughs> that I want to like learn how to actually do, because I feel like that'd be like a useful skill to have as, I mean, as yeah, like I mean... someone who like does sort of science communication things like this. I feel like that's just a generally useful skill to have. So what Gavin is asking for is for you to both follow us on Twitter and then to uh, reply to all his tweets and give him feedback on how That's this exactly. tweet could have been done better. 
That's exactly what I'm asking for. Please do that. <laughs> uh, the more engagement, the more engagement, uh, the better at that point. Do we have anything else to plug or are we ready to get going? I think we're good. So do you have a year guess for me, Mike, for the calendar? I am. I'm going to go with, uh, been, they've been real recent. I'll go 2019 because they've been real recent lately. Mike. Don't, don't tell me I got it. You actually got one. <laughs> yes. Yes. It took me, I don't know when we started this, what episode, but like, like episode two episodes. or three or something. Yeah. yeah. It took me 20 something episodes, but I finally got the year right. Do I go for the month now? Oh, no, wait. Well, I mean, it's today. Yeah, well, it's, it's it's at least sometime this week. So yeah, right. Is... Yeah, I will I will guess the month being May. <laughs> you are absolutely correct. So this is from May twentieth. Uh, so tomorrow, uh, the day that this is going out. So from twenty nineteen, conver- conversion for greenhouse gases found. Eh. Yeah. Well, you know what greenhouse gases are. I I assume. I I've heard you know CO two, methane, trapping you know sunlight, warming the earth. You know, More or less. Generally, yeah. not a good thing. Yeah, that's pretty correct. But so researchers from Stanford University's School of Earth, Energy and Environmental Sciences proposed a novel method for reducing the negative effects of harmful greenhouse gases in the atmosphere by converting them into a different greenhouse gas. Without I have not yet read any of this. So this is new to me as well. That doesn't so much (laughs) seem like solving the problem as much as like Hey, we're making a slightly less bad problem. Right. Like I I appreciate the effort. And if it's if it like is a significantly less bad problem, then I will take it. But I'm not sure if that's calendar worthy. Just here right. and describe it. Well, let's let's see how significant it is. So Okay. Specifically, experts say that it is possible to convert methane, sixty percent of which is created by human activity into the relatively less harmful carbon dioxide. Okay, that is actually fairly significant. Methane's way worse uh, as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide is. And so they can do this with methane that's just already in the atmosphere and convert it to CO2? Uh, well, let's, let's find out. Uh, despite the fact that the process would still be releasing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, researchers say that the net effect would be uh, diminished overall as methane is one of the most difficult greenhouse gases to remove or curb. Additionally, experts say that a ton of methane, so 2,000 pounds of methane, removed in this way would be worth nearly $12,000 in carbon offsets. Okay. I mean, I am, this seems like a stopgap, but I agree. We, we um, need it. Like, I, like, yeah, no, methane, methane's very, very much like everyone talks about carbon dioxide because we're emitting much more carbon dioxide, but like methane's more potent. On like, like, per, you know, like, yeah, like with gases, capita, I, I don't know why things. they're talking about tons because with gases you usually use volume. Cause like, how do you even conceptualize 2000 pounds of a gas? Like, um, but anyway, like liter yeah. for liter of, or gallon per gallon, whichever you prefer. Um, of gas like methane is over 10 times more potent as a as a greenhouse gas so like this this is a really good thing still not awesome um but the fact that they actually mention that methane is much more difficult to remove because at least certain rocks can like carbon dioxide can be deposited as rock 
whereas methane cannot. So hmm. that's good. Really? Anyway, yeah. Well, just because um, there's lots of like calcium. The, the, the biggest you know thing that uh, carbon dioxide is deposited as is um, uh, like limestone rocks. Really? Yeah. So really, limestone is made out of a mineral called calcite, which is uh, calcium uh, carbonate. So it's one calcium ion or one calcium atom, uh, and then a carbonate ion, which is CO3 instead of CO2. So basically, it'll steal uh, an oxygen from water and add that to its carbon dioxide self and then form with calcium. And it's, it's tricky, but it can be deposited as rocks. Most of the time, it's by things like shells and stuff dying. That's normally how limestones form. But it can just be like precipitated out of the water by itself. That doesn't happen often, but it can happen. Man, can our episode be about this? Because this is fascinating. Um, not today. We can do one eventually. Okay, but... please. Can we write that one down? Can we? Because that, that's nuts. So carbon capture, I guess, is, is what we want that one to be. Yes. Okay. We yes. can actually, I mean, I'm, I'm planning to do, you know, a climate change episode at some point. So we can weave that in. Perfect. I am, I am all for uh, baking that in there. I'm look, definitely looking forward to whenever that episode is able to come. And I guess my uh, my protesting aside, we should get to the uh, the actual topic of the day. So, uh, so Gavin, what is it that we're going to be learning about today? So we're going to be learning about living fossils, which um, Mike spoiled for me that he doesn't he has not actually heard this term before, which makes the initial setup have. it makes so, the initial setup of this episode <laughs> a little trickier. But we'll we'll roll with it. Um, yeah, so, yeah. We, so we talked before we started recording and Gavin's like, yep. have you heard this term? And I said, no, but I've thought yeah. about it in the, you know, 15 minutes since he first asked me. I actually think I have heard this term before. Okay. It's just been quite a while. Okay. And probably um, in the wrong context. Right. Well, there really isn't a right context for it, which we'll talk about. But <laughs> uh, yeah, so it is a term that you hear a lot, especially like as a paleontologist or even just a lot of like modern biological things. You hear it talked about somewhat frequently, and it's almost never used correctly. Uh, so I wanted to sort of have an episode about this because I actually just read an article that was published by like a pretty reputable, um, not like scientific journal, but like uh, like science blog, like Science Daily or, or something like that. One of the more uh, well-known, like it doesn't publish new research, but it like publishes more easily accessible articles about new research. Right. So um, about a living fossil. And I'm like, okay, this is not, no, A, you're not using it right. B, the thing you're talking about isn't even like new. So like, why are you talking about it? <laughs> and and it, it was just written very poorly personally. Um, so I wanted to talk about it. So I'm tempted to like try and define what I think a living fossil is. However, it sounds Absolutely. like I, that would be a fool's errand. Like I, like I could do the best I could. And yet like that, I wouldn't actually be able to do it based on the way you're describing this. Well, I mean, as with everything, you know, I, I want to get your, your perspective on it because you know, you're sort of like the, the lay person in this scenario. So, okay. So my, so absent, like finding an old person and calling them a living fossil, sure. um, I think my understanding is if you have a species that 
hasn't evolved much over the last X number of years. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like ostriches get called this or emus. And I, I might be way off on that. But like, you know, they are they are living, breathing, like they are running around. You know, you don't need to you know, dig up a fossil to go look at the, you know, the skeleton of an ostrich. Um, but it's something that hasn't evolved over, you know, a very long period of time. And so you can study them now and know what, you know, that species was like, you know, thousands or millions of years ago. That's, I think, my understanding of what a living okay. fossil is. Uh, I'm assuming that's wrong, but how wrong am I? So that is generally how most people understand it. Um, there are a couple parts where I, 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 like the ostrich thing, I never personally heard like ostriches or emus called living fossils. Um, I, I may have just completely made that up. Like, <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's generally used by, you know, non-scientists as like something that is not evolved in X millions of years or things that look nearly the same as they did X million years ago. And the, the second of those two, where it looks the same is much closer to a more scientifically accurate, if there even is such a thing, because very few paleontologists that I know actually use this term in like a scientific way. I found almost nothing that like justifies using it in a scientific way. It's mostly just like a colloquial saying. Um, is it is it a colloquial saying that's actually harmful? Or is it just it a is. saying that like, okay, so... I guess that's why we're having an episode about this. Like, not only is it absolutely just like thing that that you know normal people might say that's whatever, but it's actually is actually causing harm. So, so what are, we will get we'll get into why it's harmful in a little bit. Okay. Well, but I want to talk with, about. Oh yeah, go yeah, ahead. Some examples. Well, let's begin with you know kind of some examples, if you can. So I said ostriches and emus, and I've been you know promptly shut down on that. So like, <laughs> what would normally get called a, a living fossil? So it's mostly things. It's kind of hard to describe, but most people like will be familiar with some of these animals. So the first one that most people think of is a coelacanth. Have you ever heard of this animal? Googling it right now. Okay. It is, it is a, a genus. Well, it's an entire group of fish, um, that was originally described, uh, using fossils is a, is a pretty big deep water fish. And uh, this entire group was named by fossils. There's a bunch of fossil species that we're aware of. We did not know that this group had any living representatives until the 1930s when somebody fished one up off the coast of Africa. And we don't have any fossils of them after the Cretaceous-Paleogene mass extinction when the dinosaurs died 66 million years ago. That's when we stop seeing their fossils, but clearly they've been alive the whole time because we have ones that are alive now. Right. But looking at a skeleton of one of the modern ones and one from, you know, way back in the day, even back in like the Triassic, you know, uh, 200 some million years ago, they look very, very similar. And as I pulled this up on Google Images, one of the kind of suggested autofills after, uh, is it coelacanth? Is how it's pronounced? Yes. 
one of the one of the first suggestions is coelacanth living fossil. Exactly. That this is probably like the stereotypical living fossil. Other good examples are things like horseshoe crabs, mm-hmm. because they also have not changed much in the last like four hundred plus million years. Okay. They look very, very, very similar. Um, and there's many, many examples. You know, there's many examples of like plants that are living fossils. For example, like uh, ginkgo trees. Um, it's typically the, the modern ones. I think mostly live in Asia, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but they, yes, mostly Asian, uh, actually exclusively Asian today. But in the past, they were extremely, extremely prolific. You know, we have all sorts of ginkgo fossils from like Wyoming. So they, they kind of lived all over the place, but now they're only represented by, I think a single, uh, a single genus, I think. Oh, wow. Still around today. Maybe in a single species. Um, yeah, a single species that is still around today, but they look very, very, very similar to they did way back, you know, when the dinosaurs were kicking around hundreds of millions of years ago. When we so say that's... look similar, like, are we, and I'm sorry to step on you there, but when we say no, look similar, uh, are we just talking about like the makeup of the skeleton or what, like when we say look similar and that's, you know, how we define mm-hmm. living fossil as, you know, as problematic as terms as that might be, what does it actually mean? Like how similar does something need to look and what characteristics are we looking for? So, um, generally, yes, we're talking about like skeletal features just because with fossils, that's pretty much all we got. Okay. Um, but so I just kind of Googled living fossil and went to Wikipedia as one does. And so just started looking through just to see, cause we've talked about it in some of my classes. Um, but I wanted a little more concrete material sort of just in front of me to sort of reference for this episode. And Oh boy, is it weird? So <laughs> the entire Wikipedia article talks about living fossil as if it is like an actual term that scientists use, which again, to my knowledge, it is not. And they list three characteristics that that define a living fossil. It says the first two are required. The third is, is not. So the first one is living organisms that are members of a taxon. So a taxon is just like any taxonomic group could be a family, a genus, um, something to that effect. Uh, living members of a taxon that has remained recognizable in the fossil record over an unusually long period of time. Hmm. So it's, it's something that is around today that you could look at a fossil from the same group from 200 million years ago and say, that is a horseshoe crab. Okay. I'm, I'm wondering who defines unusually long period of time. And I assume that's part yeah, of the Yeah, that's pretty, here. that's, yes, that's pretty big. Uh, the second required one is, uh, they show little morphological difference, whether from early members of the lineages or lineage or among extant or currently living species. So basically things from the beginning of when that group shows up, look more or less the same as they do today. So like the, the first fossil horseshoe crabs look very, very similar to today's horseshoe crabs. Okay. And then the third one that is iffy, like some, this applies to some, but not all according to them, uh, says that there tends to have little taxonomic diversity. So 
there's not a ton of different species of these things kicking around throughout history. There's, you know, whereas things like, uh, let's see, what's, what's a good example of something that's very diverse, like, uh, songbirds, like, uh, you know, the little tiny Tweety birds, extremely diverse, you know, wherever you live, you've probably got at least a dozen, two dozen species just living in that region where you live, let alone everywhere else. Whereas things like horseshoe crabs, there's really only ever one species of them around at a time, usually. Maybe a couple. I'm not a horseshoe crab expert by any means. Um, but that's generally sort of a soft third requirement. So I'm trying to wrap my head around why. So like obviously the kind of arbitrariness of both how far back you need to mm-hmm. go in order for this to count as well as like how similar is similar enough. Like mm-hmm. I can like I can see those being fuzzy enough to cause some problems. But just to a layperson, like it seems like if you've got a species that, you know, most experts would agree hasn't changed a whole lot over, you know, the last, you know, blah, blah, blah years that, well, that seems like it'd be kind of useful. Like, well, now we can study, you know, we can study, you know, currently living organisms and we can see, Mm -hmm. you know, what makes them tick for, you know, for lack of a better term that I'm aware of. Um, And have that give us, you know, a better idea as to what the, you know, what the ecosystem was like back at the time period that they first showed up. And that seems like with, you know, with those caveats, it seems like the kind of thing that would actually be useful. So why is it not? So it's, it's not useful because it gives some really misleading impressions about how evolution works. Okay. Because sort of, as you said, in sort of your definition at the beginning, it's, it's something that has not evolved in a long time or evolved much in a long time. I forget exactly how you phrased it, but that is not how evolution works. As, as we sort of talked about on, on this podcast before, evolution is a constantly ongoing thing, whether you see it happening or not. Uh, the, the biggest thing is that, you know, so a, a very, very quick and dirty recap of how evolution works very broadly. Uh, every time your cells or every time you make, uh, you know, reproductive cells, you know, sperm or egg, uh, they are sort of mixed and matched your genome. So it's only half of your total DNA and which sort of half gets picked is sort of random. And there, there's a lot of sort of randomization of your own genome that gets split in half. That combined with sort of the randomization of, you know, the, the other sex cell when they combine, that produces some new variability, as well as uh, every time that you produce a new sex cell, it's, you know, there's a chance for a mutation or, you know, some accident to occur during that process that doesn't get caught by like the body's natural, you know, sort of mutation filtration system, more or less. And over thousands and thousands and millions of years, those little mutations can build up. One of them could end up being helpful for, you know, producing more babies, which then can get uh, that, that new helpful mutation passed on, so on and so forth, for millions millions of years. Just because something looks the same as it did back then doesn't mean all of that those processes weren't going on that whole time. 
It was still evolving, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think a really good example of this actually is, so there are two different species of living coelacanth today. There's one that lives more off the coast of Africa and one that lives in Indonesia. And they're in the same genus, but they're two different species. And genetically, we've, we've tested their DNA. And genetically, they are more different from each other than humans are from even orangutans. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. So, so clearly, calling a coelacanth a living fossil, like, <laughs> somebody it, it, screwed that up. Right. And it, well, realistically... Um, I didn't actually know this until doing some of the research for this episode, but the, the term was actually coined by Darwin in the origin of species. Oh, wow. Right. Wow. Uh, he, Darwin, mm -hmm. buddy, you're letting us down here. So, but I think after that, it got co-opted to talk about things that just look old. Or look like they belong in prehistoric times. I often sort of hear it used for things like crocodilians as well. Um, just because mm -hmm. they they look big and, and ancient and reptilian, similar to how dinosaurs do. Um, and so it's sort of co-opted by media, I think, to give a false perception of how evolution works. Which is why I personally really don't like the term. Is there any way for this term like to be used, you know correctly if you know if the media hadn't taken it run with it if scientists had it, like is there a world in which this idea like could be used or is this just like is this just so far afield from the way evolution actually works and the way scientists do their jobs that like it is for all practical purposes just like not something that would be used in any in any way in any kind of scientific discipline Personally, I think the best use of it would be groups of living organisms because this, you know, like we mentioned with uh, ginkgo plants, you know, it's a type of tree. Uh, it applies to, you know, plants as well. But any group that was like originally named based on fossils that we then found living representatives of. And there's, there's a solid handful of these. So that's probably... If I were to, you know, go back in time and define living fossil before the media got their weird hands on it, um, <laughs> that's probably how I would define it. Okay. So the, the biggest thing is that I kind of wanted to use this as sort of a springboard for talking about how evolution works in mm -hmm. that. You know, as, as I've said, there's, you know, those random changes, some of which might be beneficial that then get passed on uh, to your to the kids of the ones who can produce more kids because of that beneficial, uh, you know, variation or mutation. But there's also sort of different thoughts of um, how this happens, because there are certain times where we see not a lot of general change going on, you know, and of course, this varies from, you know, group to group. But, you know, for example, coelacanths, you know, I'll say mm -hmm. the last 66 million years of coelacanth evolution seems to be pretty slow. You know, there hasn't been, at least morphologically, a lot of change. There's, I'm sure, been some like physiological, you know, different chemical things going on inside their body that we can't really tell from fossils that have changed. Mm -hmm. But, you know, skeleton wise, they look very similar. So that's been relatively slow. Whereas other times, 
uh, like we've talked about sort of in the Miocene period, or uh, epic rather, um, horses get extremely diverse. And they get diverse very, very quickly in a span of only like a few million years. So why is there this discrepancy? So that comes down to a sort of thought of evolution, because as much as we like to think we fully understand it, we, we kind of don't. We, we have a really firm grasp on like, yes, it happens. We just sort of argue about how. <laughs> um, but one of the more convincing sort of models, I guess, is called punctuated equilibrium. Which basically means there's long periods of time where evolution happens relatively slowly. And then in between, so that's the equilibria part, you know, not a lot of change. But punctuated in between those long periods of not a lot of change are periods of very, very quick change. So that would be that, you know, the period of quick change would be around when, you know, uh, grassland started to expand. Horses started eating grass instead of leaves, and they got very diverse. This sounds like the kind of thing where, like, I guess I have two things I want to say. Number one, like, mm -hmm. on, you know, one of those evolution trees, this seems like mm -hmm. something where there would be one long continuous line mm -hmm. followed by, like, you know, a bunch of offshoots coming, you know, in rapid succession. Do I have, like, that idea kind of right? Pretty much, yeah. And then, so the other way I was, like, as this was going through my head, like, if there was a particular species that had just, like, super well adapted to a particular environment, and that environment lasted for a while, it mm -hmm. was really, it was really used to living, you know, I don't know, the desert or something, and that's all it ever was. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, one day grasslands, you know, the environment changes, and now that area that was a desert now has grass in it. And that sudden change in environment then prompts, you know, a bunch of different offshoots of this one species. Is that is that one way this kind of this uh, punctuated equilibrium can actually go about happening? Or is that a little too simplistic? Or no, that's, simplistic? that's more or less exactly what happens. Okay. Um, and it gets a little more complicated than that. So of basically up, up until the, the people who sort of uh, came up with the idea of punctuated equilibrium, this was in like the early 70s uh, is when people sort of started you know, proposing that, that this might be a thing. Because up until then, it was sort of thought that evolution was just like a long, slow, steady transition. You know, and you, in the fossil record, you just happen to get points along like that line of slow succession. But right. the more, the more data we got, the more we're like, okay, this probably isn't true. Um, and since punctuated equilibrium has been, you know, proposed, that's not, quite the way it from what we can tell it doesn't happen quite the way the the original people proposed it it's somewhere kind of in between uh like punctuated equilibrium and the long slow thing so it's it's, it's weirdly complicated but punctuated equilibrium is probably just the easiest way to explain it um but essentially like you said just a long time of something being adapted well enough i wouldn't say like well adapted but like they're doing well enough that like if a change happens, it might not necessarily be necessary because evolution also is sort of also falsely uh, flagged or like talked about in terms of like survival of the fittest. And that's not really 
also how evolution works. It's like survival of the good enough. You know. Right. If you're are able you, to are, continually get to the point where you can reproduce, good. Yeah, right. Like if you, you know, for some reason break a leg, or well, I guess that's not a genetic thing. So if you're born with if you're like a horse or something and you're born with like a slightly deformed, you know, front hoof, but you still have babies, hey, good enough. You know, you did the job. Mm-hmm. So um, but yeah, so essentially with things like coelacanths, which are very, very deep water fish, you know, they typically live, uh, well over like 300, 400 feet deep in the ocean. Um, and so down there, not a lot of things change, (laughs) you know, (laughs) it's, it's even with like climate change, the, the biggest thing, climate change really isn't affecting like the deep, deep ocean. The biggest thing that's affecting them is like microplastics and, and plastic garbage from humans. But uh, climate change will take a very long time to affect the deep, deep ocean. Um, and because of that, it's, it's a very stable environment. And the coelacanths, you know, the, the body structure that they had was good enough for what they do. So they just have not been pressured to change their body plan over the last however many millions of years. In that sense, the like like you were sort of saying with a with a desert, the the bottom of the ocean is very much like a desert. But it's been a desert basically forever. It's sort of like a closed loop, like the you know the organisms down there exist without ever knowing like the sun existed. More or less, yeah. I mean, it's it's not because most of the things that they eat, like deep water ecosystems, are mostly fed by things that live. At the surface, dying. Oh, really? And, and falling. Yeah. Did not know that. With the exception of things like um, like hydrothermal vents, they have their yeah. own weird ecosystems. But yeah, that's what so I was like, always thinking. Okay. But no, yeah, they live just sort of in the complete abyss. And basically, and coelacanths are big fish. They can be like six feet long or so. Uh, but they basically little microscopic things toward the surface die and then they fall and and sink small fish eat them bigger fish eat those bigger fish eat those and so on and so forth that's how like really really deep water ecosystems work um that's the whole story yeah more or less <laughs> uh but yeah it's it's just uh with, with living fossils because that article specifically that i mentioned earlier was written about coelacanths i'm like okay but like we've known that coelacanths have been around for nearly a hundred years now. Uh, so we, we actually, so I, we found the ones off South or uh, South or like Southern Africa ish uh, in 1938. And then the Indonesian ones, we actually didn't find until I think 1998 or 1999. So still very recently. Uh, like we were alive. Oh yeah, totally. So, still pretty recent but uh yeah it's it's just not not a good term (laughs) and uh this actually brings up another really interesting piece of not quite evolution but paleontology that uh i wanted to sort of bring up which is there's a there's a lot of fun terms in paleontology that i like to use um and that are actual official terms unlike living fossil all right so let's learn some real terms we got so, punctuated equilibrium. We already got one. Mm-hmm. So 
being a history person, I know you're much more like more recent, like U.S. history. Um, and this is like vaguely historical with like the Bible. But do you know much oh, about Lazarus? <laughs> I honestly, you could tell me right now you were making the name up. <laughs> so I am also not uh, all that studied in the Bible. But from everything I can tell, Lazarus is the story of a guy who basically came back from the dead. Oh, I heard another guy that did that. Oh, I'm sure there's. Well, yes. I don't know why we. I don't know why we don't call them like Jesus taxa, but I feel like <laughs> because the the term is Lazarus taxa. Um, yeah, I don't know why. That's that we don't call them that, but oh we my don't. God. New campaign. <laughs> um, but yeah, essentially, Lazarus taxa are species where we don't find them for a long time in the fossil record. So say we find that like something in like the Triassic period, you know, we'll, we'll say like 180 or so. Um, or I guess that's, that's not quite Triassic. So we'll say like 220 million years ago. That's the last time we see a fossil of it. Okay. But then we find another one. Um, Let's see. We'll, we'll say like from 220 to 50 million years ago, we don't see any fossils of this group at all. But then at like 40 million years ago, we find one. Okay, this is... I have some questions, but I assume you have some answers to my questions. I do. So go ahead. What do you got? I How? Like, so, are we just bad at finding fossils from that time? Was there something that happened on the earth that made fossil, you know, the fossilization of these organisms not possible? Like, how? Did they just re-evolve? Is that a thing? Is re-evolving a thing, Gavin? Sort of, but not what we're talking about here. I can talk about that in a second, though, because that's also a fun term. Oh, um, so Lazarus taxa essentially are when a group becomes so rare that you just don't find fossils of it. You know, we've talked before about how like things like bats, you know, in the, in, you know, the flight episode, um, we talk about bats and how they just don't have a very good fossil record because a, they're small and fragile B, they don't tend to live in places that preserve fossils well. Um, but at least bats are very common. So we do have some bat fossils, but being common is easily the easiest way to become a fossil. If there's a lot of you, statistically, some of you are going to be fossilized. That makes sense. But coelacanths, from what we can tell, even today are very rare. Like the Indonesian ones, um, in the roughly 20 years between when we found them, and I think the last data that I was able to find for it was from 2018, only eight of them had been found in, in 20 years. And that's when we know and have been looking for wow. them. Right. Wow. So it's like they're, they're very rare. And they, if something's rare, it's just the odds of it becoming a fossil in the first place are very, very, very slim. So it could have just been living in a place that didn't preserve fossils well, or, uh, or a, a huge number of other reasons, you know, that, that fossils just aren't found, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was, it was always there in that time where we weren't seeing the fossils, but we just don't have fossils of it. So that, gotcha. that is, that is a Lazarus taxon. And that is probably what most 
people think of like a good thing for a living fossil would be. You, you just don't see it for a while. And then the next time we see it is today. So if I, if I had to guess, I would say there's probably not a whole lot of coelacanths being fossilized right now. Yeah. That's finding that's, so little of them. Yeah. That's broadly correct. Just because, um, I mean, have you ever seen videos of like when a whale dies and falls to the bottom of the ocean? I don't think so. They're very neat. You should look it up. It's called a whale fall. A whale fall. Oh boy. Yeah. But like whale, well, like, uh, food in general is just so scarce at like the very bottom of the ocean that right. like when something dies, especially something as big as a whale, but you know, like I said, coelacanths are pretty big too. I've seen nowhere near as large as like a whale, but you know, when, when something dies and falls to the ocean, it's a big deal for, for, you know, the things that live down there mm-hmm. and they eat it very, very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> um, there I'm are even at the thumbnails right now on YouTube and there's a lot of, skeletons. Oh yeah. Oh Yeah. And there's also, especially in the deep ocean, just not a lot of like sediment being deposited there, which is what you need to become a fossil is you need to be buried. Mm -hmm. And so generally it just doesn't really happen in the deep ocean. Uh, It's very rare that we have deep ocean rocks with a lot of fossils in them. Uh, You you might get like one or two things in like a really deep ocean formation, uh, but you're very rare to find anything large or anything where there's like multiple of them nearby. Right. The conditions just aren't good for it. Right. Um, as opposed to things like coral, which live like on the shore where there's a lot of sediment being put on them and there's a lot of them, which is good. So, um, that's why you find a lot of corals in the fossil record versus a lot of coelacanths. Uh, but yeah, so that is, if, if I had to pick a second best use for living fossil, it would be Lazarus taxa where there's the long gap and then we see them today. So that would, that'd be slightly mm-hmm. more inclusive. You know, there'd be more things that that applies to, uh, I think than just the sort of definition I had earlier where it was described as, as a fossil and then found alive sometime recently. And it seems to make sense because, like, you know, it seems like this organism only exists in fossils except for the fact that, you know, there's a living one. You know, we have fossils, we have a gap of, you know, however many years. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, they haven't, like, that That almost seems to be not very scientific, but, like, a, a better way for that term to be used. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, but then I, I can't end this episode without talking about that other fun term <laughs> re-evolution so, re-evolution so, what do we got here? so sometimes so we've talked about convergent evolution before yes. on the podcast yes basically when two things that are not related look like each other more or less um sometimes you'll have a group go extinct and and like actually extinct not we find it later you know mm-hmm. uh, not a lazarus taxon but goes fully extinct and then later on, you find something that looks a lot like it. We call those Elvis taxa. <laughs> Can you guess why? Uh, 
Yes, yes, I can guess why. Uh, despite the fact that I've never myself been to, say, Las Vegas, yeah, um, I the the best evidence we have is that uh, Elvis Presley, mm-hmm. uh, you know, king of rock and roll, sure, is is dead, yeah, dead, dead, not like hiding in a mountain somewhere. Correct. However, there are uh, lots of other people that look suspiciously and sound suspiciously and move their hips suspiciously, <laughs> like Elvis Presley. So I I am going with that so that it, you know it is they are different things but damn it if they don't look really close. Absolutely. And because oh this God, because we're amazing. Because we're having fun. Um I'm going to read the direct quote from the paper that this was uh that this term was uh like used in the first time it was when, used. When was this paper published? 1993. Okay. So it's been in use for a little while now. Yeah. Um, so it says, rather than continue the biblical tradition favored by Jablonski, the, the person who uh, named Lazarus Taxa and came up with that term, we prefer a more topical approach uh, and suggest that such taxa should be known as Elvis Taxa in recognition of the many Elvis impersonators who have appeared since the death of the king. <laughs> so they sort of proposed it as the same as Lazarus Taxa, but should be used instead. These days, you know, in the almost 30 years since that, um, it's come to be more widely used as how I described it as a convergent evolution thing rather than mm-hmm. us just not finding it for a while. Convergent. Yeah, right. Okay. That I, that doesn't seem to quite fit the, uh, the ethos, but I'd seem to get it. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because... The first thought that I had when I learned about Elvis Taxa was, okay, if the thing that went extinct went extinct, obviously it was not something happened to make it not fit its environment anymore. Right. Right? So why would something evolve then to look like it and kind of do what it does? Right. Like those traits have already been selected against. Right. So why why would nature select for that same thing sort of again? Um, and that sort of doesn't take into account some of the behind the scenes things that we just don't get with fossils. You know, there could be, you know, maybe the uh, f- the first one, the one that went extinct, just was not getting enough nutrients from its food that it was eating. It was just not a super efficient at doing that. Whereas the second one, uh, you know, if this usually happens a lot with uh, things like clams or things like brachiopods, which are vaguely similar to clams, but things that sort of sit in the sediment. So it's like, okay, their shape is good enough to be sitting on sand without being swept away by tides and things. So the shape was good enough, but something about its physiology was not good enough. So the new thing that looks like it was just better at getting more nutrients from food. Or something huh. to that effect. So, so they that's, did it better. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily true of actual Elvis impersonators. Uh, personally, I don't know. <laughs> I also have never seen one, so I can't really say. I saw one. One performed in uh, in my hometown that I was I was working the show actually, and I was like, "All right, this is this is good." <laughs> but yeah, so. With this, I kind of just want to go through now and talk about some other examples of living fossils because some of them are actually really cool because they really do look like 
things that are just super ancient and super old. Um, but unlike things like crocodilians, which we sort of talked about, uh, you know, we have a fossil record of crocodilians. We don't have a great fossil record of some of these other things. All right, so let's hear it. So uh, there is uh, the genus Metasequoia, and you might have heard of sequoia trees. Yes. The very, very large redwoods. I'm familiar. Uh, so Metasequoia is related to them, but older. And they basically, uh, so the, the, the genus itself was named in 1941 based on fossils. You know, we have fossils of, of this genus. And they were pretty widely distributed all across, uh, you know, what is what is today Asia. And, and then, you know, sometime later, they just kind of found some chilling in like a very small pocket. There's not, they don't have a large range today. Um, but they basically are just chilling and where they live, they do pretty well. <laughs> but there's just a little pocket in China where they still currently live. Really? And like, these, it's not like these are like inconspicuous trees. They're like over a hundred feet tall easily. <laughs> so like. So easy to notice. Exactly. Um, so it's not always things that live in a weird place, like really deep ocean, like, uh, like see the cants. Um, in some cases, you know, when the fossil was described first, it was just that the fossils happened to be in places where, you know, like Western scientists, European scientists found them, but currently live in a place where they were not currently practicing, you know, or like at the time practicing, you know, Western science places like China, um, or at least were not as well explored at the time by scientists. So, um, that's pretty much the case of, you know, this type of tree. It was just in a weird place that scientists hadn't been able to get to. And because of that, it went undiscovered for so long. And I'm sorry if you mentioned it. When, do you know when this was actually discovered? Uh, as a fossil, like I said, sometime in the 40s. Um, let me look. Uh, also, later 40s. So very closely afterward. Oh, wow. That's, that's wild. It's like uh, someone's see. playing a prank on you or something. Oh, yeah, totally. I'm just imagining somebody like going to a meeting like, all right, Frank, you're never going to guess. Mm. But you remember the <laughs> fossils that didn't exist anymore? Do I have a story for you? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm just double checking to make sure that this is correct. Although some of the things. Uh, yeah. So the fossil genus was named in 1939. Okay. And then the living species, because there's only one species around, was named in 1948, so only about 10 years later. Oh, wow. Um, That's way sooner than I would have thought. Oh, yeah, totally. There's many insects, just because insects don't tend to fossilize well. There's several groups of insects uh, that were named from fossils that are that we then were able to find alive. Uh, you know, today there's a, a species of beetle which is really neat in that uh, the only living representative of this family uh, is found in some like mountains in Siberia, <laughs> which like, I'm like, I didn't even think bugs lived in, in Siberia. Yeah. Nope. I, I wouldn't have guessed that either, but okay. Uh, so in that case, the fossil uh, genus 
was named in 1985 and then the beetle was found in uh 1996 so also 10 years later Mm -hmm. let's see um ginkgo trees like i said uh super super like incredibly widespread uh you know throughout most of the mesozoic you know when dinosaurs were around Uh, right and then the tree today is actually pretty widely uh of you know you can you can buy ginkgos to grow usually they won't grow in where you (laughs) live they have they have a pretty specific like kind of temperature and stuff that they need but you can try Mm mm-hmm but the first member of not the not the genus, but their uh, larger group, their order, appeared almost three hundred million years ago, and they've just been chilling this entire time with very very little morphological change. That doesn't mean no physiological things have changed, but due to the way that fossils work, we obviously can never know that. Right, like it, and, you know, it, like we, we'll never be able to know, you know, the behavior of a particular species, but their bone structure has stayed largely the same. We can we can talk or we can learn a little bit about behavior and things, not a ton, but we can learn some, mostly like um, metabolic stuff, and even that we we can do some, but you know how they process food, how efficient they were at eating. Um, or in the case of plants, you know, how efficient was their photosynthesis? Things like that. Um, mm-hmm. But, and there's, you know, many, many examples of things that people have referred to as living fossils. Um, you can just literally Google uh, living fossils and go to the Wikipedia page. And there's some really, a lot of things that like I would think, I'm like, yeah, I think that probably qualifies just me being totally like subjective in what I think would count because on here they have snapping turtles as living fossils. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) We have great snapping turtle fossils and, but, but not even from all that long ago. So this is just kind of, once again, proving the point of, you know, in addition to the other, you know, issues with the term, just the arbitrariness of, you know, how similar and how recent and, you know, all of that, you know, it all comes back to really make this a, uh, a useless term for, you know, anybody doing anything academic. Oh, absolutely. And you'll find that a lot with like sciencey sounding terms in media where actual scientists are like, we don't use that. Another one that I'm not going to go into, but I'll just mention here is apex predator. That's definitely like a media-ish term. I, I have heard of that, but don't know what it is. Give me the, what's the one sentence definition of apex predator that is, as the media would define it? Supposedly like the top of the food chain. You know, no, nothing eats it. Right. It only eats other things. Things like lions, great white sharks, uh, big, big crocodiles, humans. Yeah. Uh, stuff like that. So not gotcha. really a term that scientists actually use, but media. Well, you can look forward to the running feature of words that aren't actually used on uh, on this podcast the further we go. But I believe that about wraps it up. Is there anything else we have left to cover? I don't think so. I just like talking about scientific terminology because obviously we can have a lot of fun with it, as we've seen with Elvis impersonators and the Bible today. 
Uh, but some of them, despite being sort of innocent sounding like living fossil, really just don't make sense. Which is why Gavin is here to explain that to all of you and most importantly to me. So <laughs> thank you very much, Gavin. This has been episode 23 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. If you hear someone using the word living fossil, send them this episode, make them listen to it, and hopefully they will change their ways. Yes, please. Thank you, Gavin. And we will see you guys all next week. This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Gavin Davidson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Fenella Campanino. It was sound edited by Mike Bryson and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you. 